Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is committed to bringing you the ad-free, in-depth news you rely on. Our daily global news hour is not funded by corporations or the government. We don't run ads or have a paywall. We rely on you to make our daily news hour possible. Please donate $5, $10, or any amount at democracynow.org today to support our independent reporting. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! The officers understood that the weapon was a war-style weapon. Its initial purpose was to kill humans efficiently. It is very good at that. The trauma. No! and the efforts for change. I have hope that collectively you will have the courage and the strength to do what is just and right. Wednesday marks one year since an 18-year-old gunman shot dead 19 children and two teachers at the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. We'll look at the new Frontline documentary after Uvalde, Guns, Grief, and Texas Politics with the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Maria Hinojosa. Then, as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis prepares a run for the White House, we look at a sweeping new anti-immigrant law in Florida. It will criminalize the transportation of undocumented immigrants into Florida. It will impose new um, employer verification restrictions and hamper the ability of employers to hire immigrants. And it will deny medical services to undocumented immigrants seeking care in state-funded hospitals. So it really can do a lot of harm in the state. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy emerged from the White House Monday without a deal to raise the limit on the national debt. McCarthy's high-stakes negotiations with President Biden came just 10 days before the U.S. faces a possible default on loans, with Republicans demanding sweeping cuts to social programs as the price of any deal to raise the U.S. debt ceiling. After the talks, McCarthy shrugged off a reporter's question about whether Republicans would support rescinding the Trump-era tax cuts that overwhelmingly favor corporations and wealthy U.S. residents. So the problem is not revenue. The problem is spending. I simply believe, like any household, like any business, like any state government, when you're this far out of whack, you have to spend less than you spent last year. Earlier this month, the Congressional Budget Office reported extending tax cuts passed in 2017 and signed by then-President Trump would add $3.5 trillion to the federal deficit through 2033. This is House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries. They've taken revenues off the table. They don't want to revisit the GOP tax scam, which exploded the debt by $2 trillion to subsidize uh, the wealthy, the well-off, and the well-connected. They said, no, we can't have a conversation about that. Can't have a conversation about revenue. Can't have a conversation about any policy changes that Democrats would like to have. Does that sound like a negotiation? 
or is that a hostage-taking situation? House Democratic leader Jeffries said he's open to a deal that would see federal spending frozen at current levels. Members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus have rejected that idea. They're calling on President Biden to invoke his authority to avert a debt default under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Russia's war in Ukraine spilled back into Russian territory Monday as self-described anti-Kremlin Russian militias launched cross-border raids into the Belgorod region of southwestern Russia. Groups calling themselves the Russian Volunteer Corps and the Freedom of Russia Legion claimed to have captured the Russian border town of Kuzinka and several others. This is an unnamed fighter with the group in a video release Monday. We are Russians just like you. We are people just like you. We want our children to grow up in peace and be free people, so that they can travel, study, and just be happy in a free country. But this has no place in today's Putin's Russia. Rotten from corruption, lies, censorship, restrictions on freedoms, repressions. In a statement, Russian officials said they'd opened a terrorism investigation against anti-Kremlin militia fighters in Belgorod. Meanwhile, a recent U.N. report accuses mercenaries from Russia's Wagner Group of involvement in a March 2022 massacre in a village in Mali, in Africa, which killed at least 500 people. Most of those are believed to be civilians rather than Islamist militants, as claimed by authorities. The report also says the attack by Malian troops and Wagner in Mura included rapes and torture. Wagner mercenaries operate in Mali and at least six other African nations, where they've been accused of atrocities, while the U.S. has said Wagner is trafficking natural resources from African nations to fund the invasion of Ukraine. India's meteorological department has issued heat alerts for the capital, New Delhi, and several states as daytime temperatures soar to 45 degrees Celsius, or more than 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Parts of the northern state of Uttar Pradesh have suffered blackouts of more than 12 hours, coming despite a government order that all power plants run at full capacity. In Alberta, Canada, forecasters say rain and cooling temperatures should help firefighters bring a record-smashing spring wildfire season under control after some 2.3 million acres burn. Smoke from the fires has prompted air quality alerts in U.S. states, including Colorado, Idaho, Montana and Utah. On Monday, the World Meteorological Organization reported extreme weather events caused some 2 million deaths since 1970, with over 90 percent of those killed from the global south. The Biden administration has reached a three-year deal with western states to conserve water from the Colorado River. Under the agreement, the federal government will distribute $1.2 billion to water districts and tribes in California, Arizona and Nevada to compensate them for cutting back their water use. The plan hopes to slash water use from the Colorado River by 13 percent. Thirty years of drought fueled by the climate crisis have reduced the river's natural flow by about 20 percent. Conservationists welcomed the agreement but said a more permanent solution is needed to protect both the river and the 40 million people who rely on it for agriculture, drinking water and electricity. Nevada lawmakers have approved a measure that would protect people from out-of-state 
who traveled to Nevada seeking an abortion from prosecution. The bill now heads to Republican Governor Joe Lombardo's desk. Lombardo's office said he hadn't yet decided if he would sign it into law. In related news, eight more women have joined a lawsuit against Texas's near-total abortion ban, arguing the restrictions put their health and lives at risk as they were forced to carry out pregnancies despite experiencing medical emergencies. Five other women had initially filed the lawsuit in March. South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott has entered the race for his party's 2024 presidential nomination. Scott officially announced his candidacy Monday at a campaign rally in North Charleston. Joe Biden and the radical left are attacking every single rung of the ladder that helped me climb. And that's why I'm announcing today that I'm running for president of the United States of America. South Carolina Senator Scott is the 11th black senator in U.S. history and only the second African-American Republican senator since Reconstruction in the 1860s and 70s. He has an A rating from anti-abortion and pro-gun groups. The writer E. Jean Carroll seeking further damages in a defamation lawsuit against Donald Trump after he mocked her in a May 10th televised town hall event broadcast live on CNN, while an audience packed with Trump supporters laughed and applauded his remarks. Carroll seeking at least $10 million in additional compensation. Earlier this month, a New York jury in a separate lawsuit found Trump liable for sexually abusing her at the Bergdorf Goodman department store in the 1990s and defaming her, ordering Trump to pay $5 million. Meanwhile, federal prosecutors led by special counsel Jack Smith have filed a subpoena seeking information about the Trump organization's deals in seven countries since 2017. The probe suggests Smith is looking into possible connections between Trump's foreign business dealings and classified documents taken to Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort after he left office. The U.S. Secret Service has detained the driver of a rental truck that crashed into security barriers outside the White House Monday night. No one was injured in the ramming. Investigators found a Nazi swastika flag in the truck and say the driver hit the barriers at least twice in an apparently deliberate attack. In Arizona, the FBI has launched an investigation into the fatal shooting of the respected Tohono O'odham artist and leader Raymond Mattia, who was gunned down by Border Patrol agents outside his home last Thursday. Mattia lived in the community of Menager's Dam, just a few miles from the U.S.-Mexico border. He'd called Border Patrol after finding a group of migrants on his property. Mattia's family says he went outside when the agents arrived and that he was about two feet from his front door when they heard gunshots. His relatives are demanding justice as authorities have released few details into what happened. This comes as more details have emerged on the death of an eight-year-old migrant girl from Panama in the custody of Customs and Border Protection last week. Anaditane Reyes Alvarez suffered from a congenital heart condition and sickle cell anemia, according to her family. Reyes, her parents and siblings were detained in Texas for over a week. While in custody, Reyes became sick with influenza. She later appeared to 
have a seizure and had difficulties breathing. It wasn't until her body went limp and she began bleeding from the mouth that border agents took her to a local hospital, where the girl was pronounced dead less than an hour after arriving. Her mother, Mabel Alvarez, told The New York Daily News, quote, she cried and begged for her life and they ignored her. They didn't do anything for her, she said. In Georgia, the gruesome death of LaShawn Thompson, a 35-year-old black man in the Fulton County Jail last year, has been ruled a homicide due to severe neglect. The findings of the independent autopsy were released Monday by Thompson's family and civil rights attorney Ben Crump. Thompson was being held in the jail's psychiatric wing, where his family says he was eaten alive by insects and bedbugs in his cell. The report found the lack of medical treatment for Thompson's schizophrenia, as well as dehydration, malnutrition, rapid weight loss and, quote, severe body insect infestation, all contributed to his death. Thompson's independent autopsy, which was funded by former NFL star Colin Kaepernick, came after the Fulton County Medical Examiner ruled his cause of death was undetermined. In Hollywood, members of the SAG-AFTRA Actors Union have set a June 5th deadline for 160,000 members to cast ballots in a strike authorization vote. In recent days, actors have joined Hollywood writers on picket lines after some 11,500 members of the Writers Guild of America went on strike May 2nd to demand livable wages as corporate profits soar. On Sunday, students at Boston University graduation ceremony booed and chanted, pay your writers, as Warner Brothers Brothers Discovery CEO David Zasloff delivered the commencement address. If you want to be successful, you're going to have to figure out how to get along with everyone. And that includes difficult people. Some people. Dozens of transgender children and youth from across the country gathered in Washington, D.C. Monday for a prom celebrating trans lives. The prom was held on the National Mall near the Capitol as anti-LGBTQ attacks intensify nationwide. This is trans activist Chase Strangio, a staff attorney at the ACLU, one of the organizers of the action. These young people are here with the families and trans adults who love and care for them. Today, we are choosing to build upon the legacies of our ancestors, embracing the possibilities of our futures and refocusing our collective imagination on the freedom, beauty, and joy that we represent. Our joy is ours. You may not see it. You may not think it exists. You may try to take it away, but it is ours. And today and every day, we celebrate, cultivate, and embrace it. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, Wednesday marks one year since an 18-year-old gunman shot dead 19 children and two teachers at the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. We'll speak with the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Maria Najosa about her new frontline documentary, After Uvalde, Guns, Grief and Texas Politics. Stay with us. All I need is a little time To get behind the sun and cast my weight All I need is peace this mind I can celebrate All I 
I Need by Air, featuring Beth Hirsch. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A candlelight vigil will be held Wednesday in Uvalde, Texas, to mark one year since the second deadliest school shooting in U.S. history. On May 24th last year, an 18-year-old gunman, armed with a semi-automatic AR-15 rifle, entered his former elementary school. He shot dead 19 children between the ages of 9 and 11 and two of their teachers. Nearly 400 officers rushed to rob elementary school, but it took them 77 minutes to confront the gunman. Investigators found officers had, quote, failed to prioritize saving innocent lives over their own safety, unquote. All of this is examined in a new documentary called After Uvalde, Guns, Grief and Texas Politics. In the special, produced by Frontline, Futuro Media and the Texas Tribune, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Mariana Josa travels to Uvalde to report on the tragedy. This is how it begins. Every two years, the Texas legislature comes to session. It's early 2023 and a busy time here at the Capitol. The Senate of the 88th legislative session will come to order. Lawmakers are voting on bills about everything, from the cost of fuel to property taxes. Many without controversy. Is there an objection to the adoption of the resolution? The chair hears none. The resolution's adopted. But in this session, the legislature is facing the divisive issue of guns. It's none of your business how many guns I own. After one of the deadliest school shootings in history. We defend the Constitution. We do everything to protect these guns. Let's just try something to protect our children. Unimaginable tragedy in Texas. Gunman opened fire at Robb Elementary. On May 24th, 2022, accounts of yet another mass shooting in our country began to hit the news. Armed with a long rifle, clad in body armor. Within days of his 18th birthday, a young man legally bought two AR-15 style weapons and a week later walked into his old fourth grade classroom. No subject with an AR and opened fire. Death toll in the Uvalde school massacre stands at 19 kids, two adults. An excerpt of the new Frontline documentary After Uvalde, Guns, Grief, and Texas Politics, which airs on PBS on May 30th. This is the trailer. No subject with an AR. In collaboration with the Texas Tribune, Futuro Media's Maria Inahosa examines the police response. The officers understood that the weapon was a war-style weapon. Its initial purpose was to kill humans efficiently. It is very good at that. The trauma. And the efforts for change. I have hope that collectively you will have the courage and the strength to do what is just and right. For more, we're joined by the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Mariana Josa, founder of Futuro Media and host of Latino USA. She anchors this new documentary 
After Uvalde, guns, grief, and Texas politics, again a production of Frontline, Futuro Media, and the Texas Tribune. Maria Hinojosa is also co-host of the podcast In the Thick and author of the memoir, Once I Was You. Maria, welcome back to Democracy Now! This is a powerful documentary that's going to air next week. Talk about your investigation of the Uvalde massacre with this, as you said, 18-year-old gunman, days after his birthday, legally purchases two AR-15s with how many rounds of ammunition? Something like 375 rounds of um, ammunition. Uh, in Texas, you have to be 18 years old to buy a rifle. The state does not require a license to openly carry one in public. You tell the story through the people who survived and the loved ones of those who did not. Take us on that journey, Maria. Hey, Amy, it's great to be with you again, and thank you for, for, for talking about this. You know, uh, it's interesting. Many of the families in Uvalde actually feel like they're ignored. They feel what I was able to, to gather in my reporting. Some of them have said that there are people kind of in Uvalde and in Texas that are just like, can you get over this? I was incredibly surprised and hurt by that sentiment. And so, like many of us in the country, what happened in Uvalde was so particular. You have a Latino kid going into his old fourth grade classroom and taking out his own. I mean, Uvalde is this big, so everybody knows each other. And, um, and I needed to understand what happened to this young man that he became obsessed. In fact, Amy, I don't know if you know this, but his nickname, because people knew him, his nickname was School Shooter. So everything was right there in front of everybody to say, wow, this is a real problem that we have here. Well, there's one psychiatrist in all of Uvalde. So even though the governor talks about wanting to support efforts to treat mental health in a town like Uvalde, which is an hour away from the U.S.-Mexico border, which is a majority Latino town. The, the other thing that I heard, Amy, is that historically Uvalde just feels neglected, like they've never really been cared for. Um, and so the help, the mental health help that the governor says he was going to put out there in order to stop more shootings didn't get to Uvalde. So that's one thing. The other thing, Amy, that I I came away, I mean, I came away with so much. I'm not the same Maria Hinojosa before Uvalde and after Uvalde, thing, the things that I have seen. And you know, Amy, we've survived September 11th, and a lot of my 9-11 trauma, I relived that when I was down in, in Uvalde. Um, the story of Uvalde is one of, yes, this horror, but there's also a history of the people of Uvalde standing up to power. And people might be surprised. What are you talking about? Well, one of the longest student walkouts in American history took place in Uvalde, Texas, in 1970, because the kids, against the kids, organized, because in Robb Elementary and the other schools in Uvalde, there was corporal punishment if you spoke Spanish. You're an hour away from the U.S.-Mexico border. Everybody speaks Spanish, but kids... As young as six years old, as we document in our front line, if they were heard speaking Spanish by a white teacher, the teacher would take a wet ruler and slap them on the back of their calf 
So there is a history of the people of Uvalde saying, hasta aquí, no more, we're not going to take this. Um, actually, in my reporting, Amy, I realized how important Uvalde is, not just for Texas, but for the country, because it's one of the birthplaces of the southwestern Chicano-Chicana movement of the 1960s and 70s. People don't know that about Uvalde and Crystal City. You know, Maria, so I wanted to go back to a Texas Tribune uh, piece about how Uvalde used to be known, as you were just describing, uh, for that 1970 uh, Latinx student walkout. This features two people who are there, Rebecca Cipria Moreno, a retired Spanish teacher who took part in the boycott, and Alfredo Santos, a walkout organizer. This is Santos. I was 17 years old. You know, it was seat of the pants. We would uh, plan at night. Uh, we'd review what happened during the day. So we started at the high school at, at 10 o'clock, and uh, people started getting up, and uh, you could see all the people moving. People got up and, and joined us. We had put together a list of 14 demands. We wanted uh, more Mexican-American teachers. We wanted more uh, books having to do with Mexican-Americans in the library, things like that. We had no Hispanic teachers. We had all white teachers. We had uh, all white school board. Hispanic positions were like the cafeteria workers, the custodians. I do sadly remember my second grade teacher. She walked up to me and got me by my ear and just pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled. And I remember crying and crying and blood was coming down my, 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 my cheek right here. And, and I remember the, the, the beatings on, on her hands for speaking Spanish. That video from the Texas Tribune, which you, Mariana Jose, worked with in producing your documentary for Frontline, but so important, as you're describing, and if you could continue talking about fitting it into the Latino history of the United States, movement organizing. Right. So I, I find it very interesting, Amy, that this part of the Chicano-Chicana movement it's, it's just, I mean, it is known, but it's, it's national history, and Uvalde was part of that. Right now, what you're seeing is part of that tradition of activism that is, as a result of this massacre, that's happening again. So the reporting for us focused on an attempt by some of the families affected in Uvalde to try to raise the age of purchase for an AR from 18 to from from 18 to 21. It's now legal to buy an AR if you are in Texas when you turn 18, which is what this shooter did. And interestingly, Amy, the activism, while there was no change in legislation in Texas because of what happened in Uvalde, just now the legislature is closing down its session. The families did move things, they were able to at least get a point to testify at the Texas state capitol. And so the act, but the truth is, is that Uvalde is still very abandoned, muy abandonado. It is a mental health desert. And I'm hoping, this is very personal, this has nothing to do with the front line, but for me personally, I really hope that Uvalde becomes the opposite of a mental health desert, that it becomes... Um, a mental health forest, a, 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 a place where people can go and be surrounded in nature and the murals for the 19 kids and the two teachers. Uvalde is a beautiful little town, and, um, and it should be known for more than just this massacre, which is part of what we're trying to say. 
yes, this massacre happened, but also Uvalde is much more complex, and there's a history there that we all need to know. And that history also inspires the very young. Um, the potent poignancy of this documentary, part of it is the relationship you have with Caitlin Gonzalez, the 10-year-old who survived the massacre, a Robb Elementary School fourth grader who lost two of her best friends in the shooting. This is her last August speaking at a school board meeting in Uvalde, where she demands the firing of the school police chief, Pete Orlando. If a law enforcement's job is to protect and serve, why didn't they protect and serve my friends and teachers on May 24th? I have messages for Pete Orlando and all the law enforcement that were there that date. Turn in your badge and step down. You don't deserve to wear one. Can you tell us, Maria, about Caitlin Gonzalez, who <clears throat> goes on to organize with people from 1970? But tell us her story. So, Amy, you know, again, people think of Uvalde and it's just like this overwhelming sadness. And again, I'm telling you, I'm a different person since I spent my time in Uvalde. And the thing that gives me so much hope you know, there's a saying in Mexican Spanish, no hay mal que por bien no venga. There is no bad from which good cannot come. And the good here for me personally is that I've established a relationship with Caitlin Gonzalez, her mom, Gladys, her dad, Neff, and her little sister, Camila. And Caitlin has become that person who has taken the sadness and the rage that she feels. You hear it. She's talking to law enforcement and saying, how could you wait 77 minutes before you came to save the kids in the classroom. And she has transformed that rage into an understanding that her voice has power. And in our documentary, she's working with Lalo Castillo, who is one of the organizers of the 1970 walkout. And you can, you can see, and look, activism in our country is part of our democracy. Some people don't like it, but that's in part, that is in fact part of our democracy. And so what we're documenting is seeing how Caitlin is understanding the power of her voice in a democracy the power of her voice in her town, the power of her voice as a little girl, una niñita. Um, and what she says, actually, when she was at the rally at the Capitol in Austin, leading a rally of hundreds of people, she said, I have to speak because my friends don't have a voice anymore. And so she has taken this. And I, I have hopes for Caitlin in terms of her life. But also, she's a kid dealing with severe PTSD and wasn't able to get the mental health treatment that she needed in Uvalde. So now her family has to travel to San Antonio to get her the MD, EMDR therapy that I can tell you is, is working. Because when I first met Caitlin in January, she was quite withdrawn. And when I was last with her a couple of weeks ago, she's much more open. I'm, of course, I'm very worried about her and her family as the anniversary comes on, June tw on uh, May 24th. Can you talk about the message that her mother got, that so many parents got? It was a recorded message on the phone on that day, one year ago tomorrow, one year ago Wednesday, as she thought her, you know, her little girl, her Caitlin, was just enjoying fourth grade that day. So it's—here's what you need to understand. There's a dynamic in Uvalde— where the, 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 the ethos is that they are 
being surrounded and constantly challenged by undocumented immigrants because they're an hour away from the border. And you're like, what does this have to do with this? Well, there were school shutdowns in Uvalde about every week leading up to the shooting. So why? Because there were uh, car police chases uh, chasing what they say are undocumented immigrants. I, I, I was not able to document this part of the story, but there were school shootings that happened. All, I'm sorry, school shutdowns that happened all the time. And so that message, you know, there's a shutdown, everything is okay. It was par for the course. In fact, the only pediatrician in the town, when he got that message, it was like, oh, it's just another, you know, another shutdown because there's a car chase happening with the border patrol. And so that was what was repeated to the parents that everything is okay. It was not okay. The police did arrive within about three minutes. The problem is, is that when they heard, and we were document, we documented this along with the Texas Tribune, when the police heard and understood that the assailant had an AR, an automatic rifle, that meant that those bullets could penetrate their police armor. And in our documentary, you hear one of the officers say, essentially, it, if he had an AR, he was going to take us out. It, whoever went first was going to be taken out. And that that is something that we need to understand, that Texas lawmen eh, were afraid of the AR-15. It's why they weren't able, I mean, they're going to say it was because of lack of coordination and such, but you are trained in a school shooting, in a mass shooting. You move in. You don't wait. They waited 77 minutes. I want to talk about the minutes. guns, and this is another clip from your documentary that's airing next week after Uvalde, Guns, Grief, and Texas Politics. As the city's only pediatrician... Dr. Roy Guerrero has cared for many of Uvalde's children since they were babies. So if anyone asks you, they're three foot six. Sound good? And he's seen firsthand just how much damage the AR-15 can do. So it's May 24th, 2022. Just talk to me about that morning. So I get to the hospital. I know something's wrong because there's doctors and nurses running everywhere. There's a few people that are injured. They're stabilized. There's these kids with minor injuries. And then you start to wonder, uh, where's everybody else? So I asked one of the nurses, all these kids I see here, is this everyone that's here? They're like, no, there's some deceased uh, uh, children in, in the back. So they took me back there, and that's truly when I realized the, the caliber of what these weapons can do to a child's body. So imagine a child who's decapitated. That's it. What else do I have to tell you? Huge chest wounds where it seems like, you know, someone bore a hand through the whole chest. The only consolence I have to myself is maybe it was so fast that they didn't have time to, to suffer. That they went quickly, maybe not peacefully, but quickly. I mean, you're reduced to saying that to parents. Mm-hmm. What else can I do? because they couldn't have done anything for them that day. Nothing. There's people saying, well, maybe we should show the mortuary pictures of these kids that were taken after they passed. Pictures of these kids in their coffins, pictures of the funerals. Emmett Till's mother made a decision to have an open casket. Mm -hmm. And it kind of changed history. Maybe that's what it takes 
Whether you want to believe it or not, this is what happened that day. These type of weapons, they're able to inflict so much damage and death so quickly and ferociously compared to other weapons. And if you turn 18 in Texas, you can go buy one tomorrow. What do you want to see immediately? I mean, if, is there something tangible that you're like, mm. at, at a minimum? Ultimately, what I would want is a ban. That's the ultimate goal, which I know I'm not going to get. I think it's going to take a few brave people at the state level to where we can start to get our voices heard. That's Uvalde's only pediatrician, as you describe in your documentary after Uvalde, Dr. Roy Guerrero. So he knew almost every child. And if you could continue on that point that he is raising, because it is such a critical one, as this country knows more than one mass shooting every day this year, is the issue is what gets shown. It's too gruesome, they say, to show this. He's talking about children, fourth graders decapitated. Will it take what Emmett Till, mother, mother, Mamie Till Mobley did, showing the images, show the pictures? What are parents and loved ones saying about this, Maria, in addition to Dr. Guerrero? Yeah, Amy, look, this is such a difficult, difficult, painful conversation. And I, I do want to just take a moment for and to show a moment of respect for every parent who's had to deal with this, right? This is a very personal decision, right? And, and all, so much surrounded by trauma, right? So I don't want to be flip about something like this. This is very, very powerful conversations that we need to have in our country. And I did see the movie Till actually on my way down to Texas. It's a beautiful movie that looks at what, uh, what Mrs. Till did in making that decision to have the open casket, which changed history. I will tell you that after the things that I saw, Amy, I'm sorry, uh, the things that I saw, Amy, I, I did, I, I, I said, these images should be shown to everyone. Everyone needs to see what I have seen, because if you saw this, there would be a massive uprising of people to say, no more. We have got to stop it. Um, that was my personal reaction. We cannot force any parent to go through that. But, but the point here, actually, Amy, is that the parents of the kids in Uvalde, Texas, are being denied all the access to all of that footage, everything. Now, when you are a parent uh, or, or a relative of somebody who has died, like on September 11th or in a tragic way, it, it becomes a bit of an obsession to know everything about what happened. And so there are parents in Uvalde who want to see everything. They are being denied that by the district attorney and other members of Texas politics. And that's incorrect. They, sh they are the parents. They should have access to that before anyone sees that. And then they will, well, they don't have access, but then they could make the decision about whether or not uh, these images should be shown. Um, so in many ways, the denial of this of this footage for them is a way of keeping them, in my view, this is very personal, uh, keeping them from making that decision, keeping them from exposing these things. Um, these are horrific things. The AR, the assault weapon, is a killing machine. It is a weapon of war. And as Caitlin's mom says, my daughter was in school 
but she was confronted with a war machine. How do you understand this? And I'll quote, actually, Dr. Guerrero, who's an extraordinary human being and an activist as well now in Uvalde, who said, if there was something in our community, it was a car, it was an animal, it was an amusement park ride, it was a ball. If there was something that was in your community that was killing children, everyone would do something to say, get that out of my community. And yet, these weapons are available and accessible legally to an 18-year-old just like this shooter in Uvalde, Texas. Mariana Hosa, we're going to leave it there, but of course we'll continue to cover this issue. Maria is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, founder of Futuro Media, which has produced the new documentary she anchors for Frontline, together with Futuro Media and the Texas Tribune that's premiering Tuesday, May 30th, titled After Uvalde, Guns, Grief and Texas Politics. Coming up, as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis prepares a run for the White House, we'll look at Florida's right turn on immigration, a fierce anti-immigrant law that's now going into effect under DeSantis. Stay with us. Mesas Redonda by Hermanos Gutierrez. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we look at the sweeping anti-immigrant crackdown in Florida, led by the Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, expected this week to announce his candidacy for the 2024 presidential race. The American Civil Liberties Union Monday filed a lawsuit against Florida over a new property law signed by DeSantis that restricts immigrants from buying homes in the state if they're born in China and also targets those from Cuba, Venezuela, Syria, Iran, Russia and North Korea. The ACLU says the new law, quote, harkens back to the anti-Asian land laws of the past century. Those laws violated the fundamental right to equal protection, just like Florida's does. The legislation takes effect July 1st, along with another anti-immigrant law that LULAC, that's the League of United Latin American Citizens, has called hostile and dangerous and prompted it to issue a travel advisory for the state, along with the NAACP. The law bans people who are undocumented from using driver's licenses issued in other states and prohibits state ID cards to be issued to them. It requires hospitals accept Medicaid to, that accept Medicaid to ask about people's citizenship status during intake, which could stop undocumented community members from seeking medical care. 
It also expands requirements for employers to use the federal e-verify system to check the immigration status of their workers. Immigrant farm workers and others have walked off the job in protest of the new law. It is very sad and unfortunate. They called us today because the painters and the people who do the cement all went to work in another state. In other videos on social media, truck drivers are calling for boycotts of Florida over its new anti-immigrant law. I don't know about you guys, but my truck will not be going to Florida at all. If we all came together as one community for Rogel Aguilera when he was facing injustice, I'm pretty sure we can all come together as a Latino community and boycott Florida as a whole. Because what they're doing to our brothers and sisters out there is not fair. For more, we're joined by two guests in Florida. Andrea Reyes is an immigration attorney based in Jacksonville. She's featured in the nude piece by Geraldo Cadava for The New Yorker magazine, headlined Florida's Right Turn on Immigration. Cadava is a professor of history and Latino studies at Northwestern University, author of The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity from Nixon to Trump. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Andrea Reyes, I want to begin with you in Jacksonville, and thank you both so much for joining us. If you can talk about exactly what this new law lays out, including someone can be arrested for driving an undocumented migrant across state lines? Yes, thank you for having me. So SB 1718 has been the um, harshest immigration bill that we have seen, harsher than the series of immigration bills that we saw back in 2010, 2011, uh, with the Arizona uh, bill under Jan Brewer. But what it what it originally was uh, designed to do was actually uh, a lot more draconian than what the final bill ended up being. Um, and that's what's created a lot of fear and havoc in our immigrant communities um, on, a, on a state and, and local um, level. Uh, originally, the bill was supposed to um, uh, criminalize anybody that was helping, basically transporting, harboring, uh, housing an undocumented immigrant in their home. Um, they could be subject to up to a 15-year penalty. The final bill provision actually um, states specifically that a, an, a person who drives into the state of Florida, an undocumented immigrant. And really, there's a very specific ver, um, word, and it's an, uh, an immigrant who um, entered without inspection. Um, so the state bill itself uses the word inspection. And in federal law, under the INA, there is a very specific definition for inspection that does not match the state definition of inspection in the bill. So there's a lot of controversy. And we, we expect to see a lot of controversy um, with that specific provision because it is very vague and overbroad. Um, as you stated in your introduction, uh, the bill also does require hospitals to provide corpor—hospitals uh, who re uh, receive Medicaid to report uh, quarterly reports to the governor's office and to the legislature about um, the immigrants that are receiving uh, assistance in their, uh, their hospitals. However, what's very tricky about that bill is that it, there's actually an ex there's, a, there's a provision, um, and it's specifically written into the bill, that allows for the hospitals to um, 
select decline to answer. Uh, so immigrants are actually allowed, you know, they're going to be able to decline to answer that citizenship question. But of course, right, you're telling immigrants who naturally don't seek a lot of medical attention as it is because they don't want to accumulate the bills. They don't want the attention. They don't want, um, you know, people asking questions about their immigration status. Now they're going to ask those questions, uh, despite the fact that they have an opportunity to decline to answer. So inherently, there's going to be a lot of fear in that as well. Another big provision of the bill is that, uh, as you know, there are about 19 states and the District of Columbia that provide licenses to undocumented immigrants. And so there's a lot of immigrants currently in the state of Florida that have lived in other locations or have families in different states, and they've been able to obtain licenses from other states. Um, this bill is now going to make it so that um, if an immigrant is stopped and they have a driver's license from another state, the police officer can exercise um, their authority as if the person was driving without a license, which means they can ticket them and or they can arrest them. So, I mean, those are like the big three things um, as well. Uh, you know, there's the, the section for um, non-citizens who potentially have their bar license right now are not going to be able to continue having their license, I, I believe, starting November 1st, 2028. Um, so we have a lot of DACA recipients, as we know, who uh, don't, it's not, a, a, it's not a, a permanent legal solution to their status, but it, it does provide some stability through work permits and social security um, for them to be able to stabilize their lives. But so a lot of these individuals who don't, who are not U.S. citizens or legal permanent residents, will no longer be able to hold um, licenses. Um, it also creates a provision for law enforcement to have to mandatory cooperate with ICE um, on any. Um, um, you know, uh, any programs that, that where an, an, an undocumented immigrant might be um, processed. So there's a lot of things in this provision and in, in this, in this bill. And what makes it really terrifying is the amount of provisions that it had. Um, a lot of the previous bills that we've seen have focused on like, you know, two, three, four items. This, you know, had, I think, over 12 provisions that directly affect immigration. Geraldo Calava, you have written a book uh, on the Hispanic Republican. Clearly, um, you have Ron DeSantis preparing to run for president, um, and he feels this will help him, whether we're talking about the abortion ban he just signed or uh, when he says this is where woke goes to die, Florida and the don't say gay bill. Um, and now you have this immigration law that's going into effect. It seems to be pillars of his platform. Uh, can you talk about why he feels, with a large Latino population in Florida, this will help him win a national audience? Talk about the makeup of Florida and also Latino Republicans. Yeah, that's a great question, Amy. And uh, I just want to say thank you for having me on. I also want to say quickly, Andrea, it's nice to meet you here. I mean, we spoke while I was writing the piece, but we had never met. And so I just want to say that you're the one doing the work on the ground and I'm just uh, reporting on it. So it's nice to see you here and thank you for the work you're doing. So I, I definitely think that this bill is related to Ron DeSantis's presidential ambitions. I mean, I think he probably correctly perceives that the national mood, especially within his own party, is against making it easier for immigrants and asylum seekers to settle in the United States. And so he thinks that if he can show that to be true, to, to be that he's doing something to be uh, effective on immigration in his own state, he might also become a good national leader on this issue as well. But 
I think it could be a miscalculation. I mean, Florida is in some ways unique. He has, through gerrymandering and uh, voting restrictions, engineered this situation in Florida where he has 28 Republican senators and only 12 Democrats. And so he can push through almost anything he wants to push through. But I'm not sure that what he's trying to do in Florida will translate nationally and, in fact, gain him uh, wide acceptance on a national level. I think Florida's Latino communities are somewhat different than other uh, Latino communities. I mean, historically, they've uh, thrown their support to the Republican Party for a long time, for decades. And in November of 2022, 58% of Latinos voted for Ron DeSantis, even despite the uh, airlifts to Martha's Vineyard and other places. So I think that in Florida, you have a much more conservative Latino population. I think what's interesting there lately is that it's not just Cuban Americans and Venezuelans who are shifting their support to Republicans, but also Puerto Ricans and Colombians and others. I mean, it's interesting you bring up the um, Martha's Vineyard trip, taking undocumented immigrants, people, asylum seekers, putting them in a plane, flying them to Martha's Vineyard. Andrea Reyes, I mean, they're talking about arresting people um, for uh, driving with people who are undocumented. He flew them. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hypocritical, right? We're saying that you, uh, you we can't have people come into the state, but we're going to take people out of other states to other jurisdictions. Um, it's an overreach of his power as a state entity, and I, and we you know we again we believe that because of the. Um, overreach that he is, you know, doing through immigration. He's trying to enact immigration laws through state law. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has already ruled that immigration, that the federal government has plenary power over immigration. And so only when the the federal powers give, you know, any authority to the states can they actually implement anything uh, related to immigration. So the fact that he's trying to create immigration enforcement through state policy is going to become a constitutional issue as well. So you're an immigration lawyer, Andrea Reyes, and you've been doing this for a number of years um, from Trump uh, through Biden right now. What do you demand of the Biden administration and how much power does Biden have right now in the face of these Republican governors, everyone from Abbott in Texas to DeSantis in Florida? Yeah, so I think um, Geraldo and I actually spoke about this in the article. Um, we can look at any president, we can look at any administration, and it's never going to be enough. Whatever a president does when it comes to the immigration world is never going to be enough because all they're doing is putting a Band-Aid on an open wound. Um, you know, a president can't fix the problem, the, the broken, delayed, strict immigration system that we have. They can't fix it. Um, in fact, our Constitution doesn't allow for it. Only Congress has the power to create the laws to fix these problems. And, you know, for for decades, Congress has refused to act on, on sensible, common, you know, positive, sensible um, immigration reform. And uh, we look at, look at the DREAM Act, for example. The DREAM Act, uh, the first version was created in 2001. That's 22 years ago. That's a whole college student that, um, you know, in, in terms of age, 
that we have not been able to come together. We've presented, I think, 11 or 12 versions of that of that Dreamers Act bill, and Congress has not been able to come together. I think the last time that we had a real chance at passing it was in 2010. Um, but since then, you know, we've presented new bills, and nothing's happened. This is the most likable, the most susceptible, the the most deserving immigrant population, right? The Dreamers, and we can't get Congress to act on behalf of Dreamers. So at the end of the day. People need to understand that, yes, a president, when you, when you go to vote for presidential elections, it matters. Absolutely. All elections matter. But that's the thing. People think that only presidential elections are going to fix their, their problems when really, especially for immigrant populations, right? The, the, the Congress, the Senate, our senators and our elected uh, representatives are the ones that have the power to build and create the laws that we need to protect us. And so until, I, I think a big part of, this movement that's going to come forward as a result of SB 1718 is all these young Latinos, I'm hoping anyways, the same thing that happened um, after Arizona in 2010, um, you know, we're going to have all these young, um, vibrant uh, Latino uh, nonprofit organizations, grassroots movers, you know, kind of teaching and educating the population on not just like what our um, political system looks like, but number one, you have to leave your baggage behind from your country. Whatever happened in your country is in your country and that has a different constitutional order. Uh, here in the United States, we have a, you know, we have separate concepts that really help us. Separation of powers, right? What, what saved us during the Trump administration were the federal courts. Um, you know, federalism, this idea of like what is a plenary power for the federal government, what is state power? Um, so if we if we if we can educate our our the immigrant population, um, if we can get voters registered, you know, if we can get people to register for voting, um, you know, I think in the state of Florida, if I'm not I might misquoted, but I think there's like a 40 percent of, um, of current permanent legal residents are eligible to vote, and they haven't registered to vote because a they don't the English right that is always an issue, but also they don't trust the system and they don't believe in our way of government because sometimes they're stuck on how their government operated in their home country. I wanted to bring and, Professor Cadava back into the conversation. We only have about a minute. But you speak to Jose Rodriguez, a priest in Florida, who says many conservative Latino voters are prioritizing anti-abortion laws over immigration. And if you can talk about that and whether you think that will change as this becomes more and more extreme. Yeah, well, what, one of the things I was interested in exploring is how this law might be seen by uh, religious, religiously motivated Latinos. And I was thinking that the bill would kind of pull them in different directions because, on the one hand, they've long supported immigrant rights and the idea that immigrants are neighbors and members of our community at the same time that they are increasingly uh, kind of supporting anti-abortion bills and, and Ron DeSantis's other pretty radically conservative legislation. So when I spoke with Jose Rodriguez, I wanted to understand how the Latinos he works with see this bill. And he was saying that he thinks that conservative Latinos are now prioritizing anti-abortion because they've kind of gone all in on the conservative movement. But he thinks that it could have uh, you know, it, it could have a lot of blowback or a lot of negative consequences for them as well once they realize all of the negative effects of the immigration bill as well. So he, he thinks that right now uh, conservative Latinos are just elevating the anti-abortion issue 
over the immigration issue. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. But, of course, we'll continue to cover this issue. Professor Geraldo Cadava, we thank you for being with us, professor of history and Latino studies at Northwestern University in Chicago. We'll link to your piece in The New Yorker magazine, Florida's Right Turn on Immigration. And thank you to and Andrea Reyes, an immigration attorney, speaking to us from Jacksonville, Florida. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.